Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect. You don't produce the music, you produce the notation for the music. You don't produce the building, you produce the notation for the building. There, there are conventions in each. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Thomas Beischer. Tom currently teaches architectural history and theory at Stanford and the California College of the Arts. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Art History from Stanford and an MA in Art History from Williams College and a PhD in History, Theory, and Criticism of Architecture from MIT. His scholarship has ranged from articles on 19th century architecture to contemporary Asian art. For more information, feel free to visit urbanstudies.stanford.edu that's urbanstudies.stanford.edu hello tom we're excited and honored to have you on the modern architect show hi tom uh, thanks it's wonderful to be here as an alum of stanford and a longtime listener of kzsu it's uh, wonderful to be in studio thank you very much we're really excited to have you tom i'd like to start um, if you're if you're okay with this, is some early inspirations, and what I mean by that is some early inspiration as to where you are now, uh, and recently, and and if you can kind of go back as far as you can recall, like where this all may have began. If you can go into your childhood as like where a certain moment, a galvanizing moment, share with us if you're at liberty to do so. Sure, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and my father was a land developer, and. My older brother and I would spend weekends going out with him to job sites, whether it was office condominiums or apartments, and walking through and checking the level of sockets or um, checking to make sure windows were installed the proper Uh way and sort of that tradition of being on site. I remember when I was about uh, five years old, I went and sat down on the ground and uh, put my hands back on a sidewalk. Unfortunately, the sidewalk walk was still wet. and So it wasn't purposeful? No, no. Okay. And my hands sunk in about a foot and I was crying and my dad was laughing. And so that's definitely etched in my mind. And then really, um, it was here at Stanford where I gained my real interest in the arts and architecture. I just had amazing professors, uh, one of whom still here, Jody Maxman, who teaches ancient art and is still a wonderful mentor to me, but uh, also Albert Elson, who brought the incredible sculpture collection here, along with Lawrence Eitner. And then uh, Paul Turner was the architectural historian here for 34 years, and he's been an incredible mentor. We still have lunch sometimes up in San Francisco, and he really got me excited about architecture, thinking about urban space and how we shape spaces, but also how they shape us. Yeah. Now, Paul, did he recently write a uh, book with uh, Frank about Franklin Wright in the Bay Area or San Francisco? Or? Exactly. Okay. It's a Yale Press book. It's a fantastic uh, book, and he's still incredibly active, even though he's emeritus here. He uh, is still writing a lot and is um, active and working in preservation work. And um, is actually, we last time we had lunch, we talked about. Uh, a book he's working on, an intro to architecture book that may coincide with some of the teaching I'm doing here now. Yes. So how, describe a little bit about the the teaching that you're doing, you know, kind of what's, what is the inspiration for it or, you know, even what period you're on or how you, how you begin it. Yeah. The teaching here, I mean, I think 
great teachers, but get great teachers. And um, so learning from Jody Maxim here, Paul Turner, Albert Elson, they were my heroes when I was here at uh, Stanford. And then I was lucky enough to go to Williams College, which is incredibly strong in teaching. So people like Mark Hoxtausen, who's in charge of the was in charge of the graduate program there, or Michael Lewis, who's a Ameri- uh, really amazing American architectural historian. And then we had visiting professors like Eve Blau, who um, normally teaches at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, or um, EJ, um, who teaches at uh, Williams, who's also a great American architectural uh-huh. historian. And so their classes and watching them lecture and TAing for those lectures uh, was really important in my development and interest in teaching. Yeah. And um, so, you know, now I try to offer the same sort of classes they do. So it's constructed by starting at a base, maybe having a class that looks at uh, architectural history from prehistory to present day, and then also having other survey classes on modern architecture, 1900 to the present, or a class I'm teaching currently on American architecture, and then more specific seminars. We have one on modern architectural theory or the idea of place. And so what does place matter in the virtual and digital contemporary world and what's the difference between place and space yeah i like that idea idea of place idea of place how does uh share with us you know how how is um would you describe an idea of place or interpret it um we i mean the class itself really starts out it's a very theoretical class but it's nice we attract students from Um, all over the university. It's part of the freshman, sophomore seminars. So it's usually a class of 10 or 12 maximum, sometimes co-taught. And we start out talking about the difference between place and space and reading people like Heidecker, Lefebvre, and then move on to ideas of maybe out of place, Um, so thinking about gendered spaces possibly, Um, sometimes thinking about no place, so what does it mean to be a nomad and maybe not be attached to a place, and then we move on eventually to thinking about virtual spaces and uh, digital spaces and how they affect the way we react to one another. Yeah, how is it digital spaces? Am I saying it correct? Digital space or digital place? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the, uh, we had a number of students this year um, write about uh, virtual reality. um, And so thinking about maybe one really great paper by a senior, Brandon Liu, uh, looked at how Heidegger's thinking about place, so a very sort of experiential phenomenological driven space or place, how that could probably possibly play into our thinking about virtual reality. And so is virtual reality another type of place? Um, What are its characteristics compared to, quote unquote, real space? Or is that also real space? Mm -hmm. Or is it a other space or place? And so um, what terms we use and how we think about defining you know, new technologies is really important. Not a lot of that has been done. When when I was at MIT, um, the media lab there is really hailed as a place of digital production and thinking about new ways of using technology, but there's not a great theorization and sort of thinking about the philosophy of those technologies. And so I think that's an area where Stanford or another university can really um, make make its mark. Yeah. How do you, do your students come in um, ready to think about architecture, place, time even, and space um, just by taking your 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 classes, or do you kind of have to get them uh, um, a sort of a ramp up to begin to think, I guess, <laughs> about it? Yeah, I, I think they have a innate interest in the topic, and they don't actually know how much they know. So usually when I co-teach it with somebody, we try to put a framework around 
the thoughts that are probably already there. And then oftentimes those thoughts can then be put into text or mm-hmm. to a more structured framework and um, really start making some headway. So that that's the goal is to take things that are out there and possibly unrecognized even by the students themselves and be able to articulate it. Yeah. What are some of the challenges to um, instructing a class like that in your experience? I think it's marshalling a lot of different viewpoints. Um, You know, most of the students aren't architecture students. uh, So having somebody from computer science, I guess the challenge as an instructor is uh, sometimes they have greater expertise in the area than you do, and so being able to guide them to the proper readings so they still feel inspired and but still have a connection to uh, thinking about the world in a built way or an architectural way, and um, also then pushing students, if they have a base idea and sort of a vague notion, really trying to push them to think deeply about their idea and to really put some meat on the bone, so to speak. I like that. So to think deeply, is that going to part of your intent by, uh, um, by being their instructor or professor? To think deeply about architecture? The, yes. Yeah. I mean, the joy of these... Uh, freshman and sophomore seminars, and I think a place where Stanford really gets it right is the idea that you're going to have an intimate experience intellectually with working with one or two professors. So the last time this place class was taught this past fall, it was eight students and two professors. And so I tried to team up with somebody that had a different experience in architectural history than me in theory. And um, that's a kind of unmatched atmosphere for really making intellectual progress. Yes. Do you have a, uh, do you ever express you're a favorite of yours, not just from a, excuse the term, like from an ego standpoint, but from just from a, from a place of, yeah, take a look at this. This is what, what I really like, and I think you might be interested in it. And still leave it open. I think you're inclined to um, be attracted maybe to the theory you learned as a graduate student or undergrad. And so I think the nice thing about doing these classes are students push you in new ways also as an instructor. The last thing you want to do is be the sort of old, fat, slow <laughs> intellect. Um, you yeah. you want to stay trained and intellectually nimble, and the students do that for you. And um, there are a lot of great ideas out there that never cross my mind or my co-instructor's mind. And so that's the joy of being around young people who are really intellectually curious. Yeah, I, I, I like the word you use, intellectually nimble. Mm-hmm. And so you have to come in, it, it, if I'm incorrect, tell me, but you almost seem like you have to come in um, as open as the students. You, you yeah. really do. You really okay. do. And you you don't, I mean... We try to avoid a list of suggested topics because in a way that would limit um, the students thinking about maybe what they want to do for their large-scale paper that comes out of this seminar. It's We, we want to re- maintain that wide-open nature to the class. Yeah. What projects are you working on now, if you're at liberty to share, Tom, um, in the community, uh, not just at Stanford, but in the community in general? Well, my interest in education really drives a lot of my work. So I'm a member of several nonprofit boards, San Francisco Performances up in the city that presents all types of music, chamber music, jazz, guitar, uh, modern dance also, among other performers. And uh, I'm very interested in their education program. It's a program that runs deep. It takes the same great performers that are on center stage into public schools and community centers throughout San Francisco and the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I'm also on the national board of Breakthrough Collaborative, which uh, has a two-pronged focus. One is on educating underserved, high-achieving middle school kids and following them through high school and with a rigorous academic program as an adjunct to their 
normal education they're getting in their usually public schools. And then also there's a teacher training aspect that's really great. And it takes kids from good colleges throughout the country and they work as instructors in our intensive summertime program. And the Uh really wonderful thing is that a number of my advisees here at Stanford have worked in this program as teaching fellows and 55% of our teaching fellows end up in education. And last summer, for instance, uh, uh, teachers of color are about, I think, 19% nationally, and we had about 37%, uh, you know, students of color working as uh, teaching fellows. Yeah, that's got to be pretty uh, inspiring. It is. I mean, it's unweedly at times. Um, is that right? And, uh, really? We have 27 affiliates across the country, and um, we're dedicated to a, a bottom-up method and serving the affiliates any way we can. And um, it's just a, a fantastic program. I mean, as far as projects I'm working on architecturally, um, I'm interested. been working on a paper on early work by Louis Kahn, a noted American architect and his work on international style, I guess you could call that a European inspired modern housing before he became famous in the 50s. This is work he did in the 30s. And then also I'm looking at the Frankfurt School theorist Adorno and um, his work on architecture. He only really wrote one, one essay on architecture. And so why did he only write one essay on architecture? And then what is his understanding of modern architecture? It really is based out of his understanding on music, which he wrote about quite a bit. Yeah. The relationship between modern music and modern architecture. Let's touch on that when we return. You're listening to the Modern Architect radio show and podcast on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Smoothen Ballet concludes its 24th season of contemporary American ballet with Dance Series 2, featuring the world premiere of Val Canaparoli's If I Were a Sushi Roll. Also on the bill is Oasis, Helen Pickett's Ode to Water set to an original score by House of Cards composer Jeff Beale and Amy Seward's visually driven Falling Up. Dance Series 2 will tour the Bay Area and Carmel from April 20th through June 2nd. For more information, visit smuinballet.org, S-M-U-I-N ballet.org. We're talking today with Tom Beischer, architectural history and theory professor at Stanford University and the California College of the Arts. For more information, you can visit urbanstudies.stanford.edu. That's urbanstudies.stanford.edu. Tom, our last segment we talked about, or we finished up with a a little, the modern architecture and modern music. How is the correlation from your, your, your experience and your vision? Well, the nice thing is I'm a member of this Society of Architectural Historians, a really wonderful national group, and they have a conference each year. They're one just wrapped up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I wasn't able to attend, but it's wonderful to see former grad students I was with or former colleagues and uh, to always exchange ideas. A few years ago, they had a session on uh, architecture and music. So there was a woman who talked about uh, uh, Wagner's uh, theater in Bayreuth, um, whereas I spoke about Adorno's interest in modern yeah. music. So they're kind of all over the place. Somehow the sessions are stitched together more cohesively yeah. than other ones. But um, I think Adorno was you know, very interested in this notion of Neuzakikite or new objectivity. That was also a word used to describe modern architecture, definitely in the pre-World War II period. And so when he wrote about modern architecture and really rebuilding Germany in the post-war period, his concepts of what uh, was modern architecture and quote-unquote new objective was affected by all the writing he had done on music. He was an incredible music critic. I mean, Adorno felt like he could really write on anything. He spent time in California and would do these very critical essays on television or <laughs> lots of different things. So um, he was, you know, someone who didn't know everything but had an opinion on everything. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, 
I've I've been uh, I recall this quote, and I don't know who wrote it, or if there was a number of people who agreed to it. Is that architecture is like frozen music? I don't know if you've heard of that. And um, what's your thought on that? Well, I I mean I do think you know architects in some ways are dealing with a sort of set of design devices that may be a bit like music okay. so that you have certain lines you put together t squares back in the day rulers and so there's a way of writing an architectural line that could be similar to music uh i know um there's famous set of drawings done by daniel liebeskin called chamber works and so there's I think he believes this idea between the notation of the architectural line and the notation of music symbols that there can be a relationship to because in architecture like music, you're not actually, they are sort of virtual in a way. Mm -hmm. And so you can see this idea that you don't produce the music, you produce the notation for the music. You don't produce the building, you produce the notation for the building. There there are conventions in each. Excellent. Well stated. The idea is that then the interpretation comes in. And so how those conventions are interpreted can be different depending on who the builder is or who's the person looking at either those architectural drawings or that musical score. Yeah. What's the background history? I know the San Francisco Decorator Showcase is, is coming on. What, what's kind of your experience and uh, involvement with it? Well, it's a wonderful event. I'm more involved this year than I have been in past years. It's an event that has occurred. On purpose? On yeah, purpose. Okay. My, so it's organized by University High School in San Francisco that's located in the Pack Heights or Presidio Heights area. It's an event that the school has done for 41 years, and all of the funds that are raised uh, go towards... Um, supporting um, their financial aid program. And so my son is a freshman there. Um, and so I've become more involved this year as a parent at the school. Yeah. So you're fresh. We have a, I have a freshman son as well. Yeah. yeah. He's at Mills in, in uh, Millbrae. How has how that uh, impacted the uh, your involvement? I mean, have you seen kind of the changes in the growth in, in uh, the, the time you've been involved? Well, I mean, the Decorator Showcase is a kind of highlight always of the spring of really design thinking in San Francisco. And so I was well aware of it even when my son was younger and even before I had kids in San Francisco. I've been in the city for just about 20 years. And so I think the really great thing about it is it's one of these events in San Francisco that celebrates design and also, you know, from my perspective as a historian, allows people to look at a number of these houses and think about, you know, why they were built, what were the motivations when they were built, and then also how they can be transformed in the current moment through the vision of a number of great designers. This year, they're over... 27 designers involved in the house or designers or artists. It's really great to see their vision of what um, a historic property can be like. Yeah. How do you, what kind of process, if you have a process, do you go through to capture that, the essence of what the architects may have been thinking um, when they, before and as they're building these homes? Well, so each year there's a house history written about the house. And so this year I was chosen to write the house history just with my background in architectural history. And so usually that means going to maybe an archive or two, the California Historical Society sometimes to find out about the architect, finding out maybe who the architect was if it's not a significant house, going to the Department of Building Inspection to find when the houses were transformed over time to see when permits were pulled, and then using, you know, local contractors and realtors and architects to try to develop a story about your property. It's really the story that people want to hear about the history of the property, and they're usually pretty fascinating. Yeah, this is just gorgeous. I don't know if you'd describe it as gorgeous. That's the only word I could 
think of right now is to actually come up, like you said, you know, with the essence of it, the story of it, and the intent, the the intent of it, and the recognition. You know, one of my um, what we do obviously with the uh, Modern Architect Radio Show is we want to bring recognition to architecture, the built environment, and I. A lot of homes, I don't know if you've discovered this in, in, uh, in your findings, but they don't always recognize the architect or the builders on the home. Is that something, I don't know if it's new, they're trying to do it, or maybe someone has to be, have an so advocate for it. Do you find that in your, uh, in your research, that they actually will say, oh, here's the architect, it's very, it's easy to find, or not? I find usually on houses that aren't particularly well-known, the decorator showcases, been hosted at very well-known houses by significant architects and then um, architects who aren't as well-known or houses that maybe aren't considered quote-unquote historically significant. My argument is every house has some historical significance. Nice. This like year's that. house is was built or designed by uh, George McRae, an architect from the early 1900s. And so... He himself is, he did a number of houses and civic structures in San Francisco, but the house itself uh, wouldn't be considered, I think, historically significant. But it really, that to me is what interest, is interesting because it's not considered interesting. It's interesting because <laughs> like in, in a way yeah. it, it represents houses that were built during that time. And so it's a Spanish revival house from 1930. And if you look at the Marina District where this house is located, it was a merging part of San Francisco at that time, a, a district that was in transition. So the Pan Pacific Exhibition of 1915 had ended. Um, most of the buildings were torn down. And really, if you look at photographs from this time, it looks like a field of unruly grass and hay. <laughs> yeah. And so this property was owned by uh, James Fair's daughters who had owned it before and the property had been infilled, the what we know today as the Marina District. Mm -hmm. And so Fair's daughters sold this property to a developer and he came in with the idea to um, develop the area like something we might see in Seacliff or St. Francis Wood in uh, San Francisco of the time, uh, curving streets, lots from an acre to a half acre. And so the difficulty was when um, he had hired uh, two architects to come in and design uh, this area, one was Chelsea Bonestell, okay. who's interesting because he became famous for these incredible uh, drawings of sci-fi drawings much later in his career. He really um, controlled the way we think about space, at least in the early years. And he's from, and, oh, that's great. And so he was involved in this project. And then also this famous designer, uh, urban planner, in a sense, Mark Daniels. He had helped do some of the layout for Yosemite Park. He had laid out St. Francis Wood and Seacliff. And so the idea was that there was going to be an area that's now known as the marina called the marina gardens and it would have curving streets and these lots and you can still see some of the curving streets around today's um decorator showcase house that break from the marina grid and so it's very interesting that part of it came but speculators came in they subdivided the lots and you've got this mix of apartment buildings and houses that we see today in the marina and then directly across from where the decorator showcase house is today since it's on marina boulevard 465 marina boulevard is the former airstrip for the marina and so this airstrip was used during the 1915 pan pacific exhibition for flying exhibitions after the pan pacific exhibition was over it was used to deliver u.s mail up until the time of the property was sold in the 1920s. And so it was an area in transition and how that area emerged as a subdivision is itself interesting. <laughs> and the Decorator Showcase House was one of these important houses built along a main boulevard of this area developing in San Francisco in the late 20s and 1930s. Yeah. How was the er that era, um, was that if you look back from that point time to 
today, was that one of the most influential periods in San Francisco history for architecture? I, or one of them, at least. I think it was yeah. in the sense that it was a growing, emerging city, that there was numerous parts of the city that were still undeveloped and that, like the Pan Pacific Exhibition in 1915, there was a real groundswell in San Francisco to prove that the city was back since the 1906 earthquake. And the way you did that was by developing the city and putting those thoughts and feelings in the built form. Yeah, I wonder if that's an inspiration just for for, for um, all humanity, is that when there is something that's such a tragedy and such a uh, uh, so destructive that there's this natural well up of let us show you that we are really on our way. You think that had an influence? I I would completely agree. I yeah. mean, it, if nothing else, the 1906 earthquake was um, an attack on the sort of way <laughs> of <laughs> way of life of yeah. th- that San Francisco yeah. n- knew and attack I mean in that it completely transformed the built space of San Francisco and so this was a chance to rebuild in a very different format. Daniel Burnham who had done the great plan for Chicago had a similar sort of Beaux-Arts inspired plan for San Francisco in 1909 that was never constructed with you know large boulevards and radial plazas with radial streets coming out from it and so that was not adhered to but it was those sorts of visions that were in play during that time yeah how in your experience how have developers or how much have developers embraced the uh, architectural historian mindset or or yeah have have they or do they not just from the dollar standpoint but from a uh Beyond our lifetimes perspective, is that have you experienced or met a number of developers who kind of think that way, or you, do you ever try to even influence them? I think it's developers are interested at the end of the day in making a profit, which is fine, and that doesn't mean they're not interested in architectural history or in having their product stand the test of time. Um, I think oftentimes they see architectural styles as different vocabularies that can dot the landscape of a development to give it some interest. But that's exactly what happened really um, since the 19th century and definitely in the early 20th century period we're talking about in San Francisco was that different revival styles were stitched together in subdivisions to give a distinction to each house. So there were lots of Spanish revival houses like the Decorator Showcase House in the Marina, but there were lots of Tudor style or other styles. And that's something you see in many cities that was appropriate at the time. So I think to hold a developer just to that would be unfair. Eh, this is this is excellent. We'll return to this when we get back. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood. However, of the 60% of Americans eligible to donate blood, less than 5% actually do. And in the Bay Area, only 3% of those eligible donate. Stanford Blood Center supplies local patients with more than 100,000 blood products per year to help save lives. SBC relies on donors like you to ensure that blood is available when patients need it most. Consider making a difference by donating blood. You could save a life. For more information, visit bloodcenter.stanford.edu. We're talking today with Tom Beischer, architectural history and theory professor at Stanford University and the California College of the Arts. For more information, please feel free to visit urbanstudies.stanford.edu. That's urbanstudies.stanford.edu. Curious question, Tom. How much has San Francisco architecture, in your in your research, influenced the U.S.? Because of its, you know, there's unique hills and there's just a lot of challenges uh, geographically. I think the joy of living in San Francisco, as I've been there for 20 years, is that the hills separate different neighborhoods and so that um, 
Coal Valley has a distinct character, from the marina has a distinct character, from Noe Valley has a distinct character, from the really growing section of South Beach now or um, the area of mid-market that's been growing. Um, as far as influencing American architecture, uh, I think, unfortunately, San Francisco architecture in the last 30 to 40 years has been very restricted by um, different city codes and, uh, you know, almost overzealous preservation of facades ah, okay. that has made it um, less interested in doing very cutting-edge architecture. So I think, you know, some of the most interesting buildings from the last 20 years would be maybe Thomas Main and Morphosis mm -hmm. uh, did the federal building on Mission and 7th. It's a fantastic building. They had done a Caltrans, Caltrans building very similar to it in L.A. Um, so that I think would be a building that pushes the envelope. Uh, I think also um, the De Young Museum by Herzog and de Meuron, this idea of a progressive architecture is very cutting edge. And maybe even for San Francisco, this idea that you would cover a building in copper and the idea was <laughs> that over time from the sea breezes and the moisture in the air that it would slowly turn green and sort of meld into the landscape is a wonderful thought. It uh, looks still like some people compare it to ocean, rusting ocean liner <laughs> stuck in Golden Gate Park. I I personally feel like it's a pretty great structure, but, um, you know, those types of structures that are really pushing the edge, um, you know, are fewer than they should be, I think. Yeah, pushing the edge along that lines, as we discussed before we come on air, and this is a, a segue, we might get some emails about, well, how'd you do that? Why'd you do it? From San Francisco to Los Angeles, isn't it? The Los Angeles mayor now has a, a former critic for the LA Times. Now, at, uh, I don't know exactly the title, but it, it's a position of actually kind of overseeing the architectural um, integrity, integrity and future of Los Angeles. How do you feel about, uh, you know, even a San Francisco or any cities having, uh, from a legislative uh, position, having someone who has uh, an excellent feel and, and an entrepreneurial bent or an architectural bent being in that capacity? Would that help minimize some of those uh, uh, oversights and over, you know, regulated processes? So I think that's Christopher Knight who. Okay is or was a incredible critic for the Los Angeles Times. I would assume he took that position because newspaper positions are sort of tenuous in <laughs> this day and age of technology. Um, I think Eric Garcetti, I can't say enough good things about him. I think he's a fabulous mayor. And the idea of having someone help his office think about how urban space is used, someone who's been so embedded and thought deeply about it, I, I just cannot see a downside about it. Um, I think, you know, maybe the challenges that Knight will face in his new position is that um, just like you see in any big city, there are different interest groups that um, have very strong lobbying power to affect the way urban space is shaped. So it's easier to write a critical article, whether you're pro or against something than it is to actually enact those policies. I very think, true. Sometimes. Yeah, very true. So a, a, a city putting someone in that capacity or some a similar capacity could not do their city wrong. Well, I think yeah. Garcetti to me, appears someone who's good at delegating ideas. He recognizes talent, whether it's an architectural critic or other positions, and he says, okay, you have expertise in this, please advise me, and then we as a city government will take someone who's been very involved in the Los Angeles landscape and take his or her advice and try to put it to work. Yeah. Are there any other examples that you are familiar with or know of that they've they've done this, had this arrangement? Uh, 
I, I don't remember the name of the woman that was in charge in New York City uh, under Bloomberg with dealing with the bike lanes and dealing with turning something like Times Square, kind of reacquiring public space in Times Square or other parts of the city. Um, but I think she would be a model maybe for what Garcetti's thinking okay. is. Here's um, somebody with a real vision that maybe I can give some power to and we can improve the daily lives of the urban dwellers, whether it be Los Angeles or New York. And I think most people agree the changes that were made often grudgingly under this woman who I apologize for not knowing her name, um, affected positive change in New York and made the city Manhattan more livable. Ah, Tom, why not you for San Francisco? <laughs> really? Okay. You heard it first here. Really? I mean, can you see some of the, 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 um, the natural segue of uh, your skill set, your passions, your expertise, your uh, your openness to better uh, make a better city, community, and, and lives, kind of like the theme of our show. It sounds attractive, but okay. I, I, I love teaching at Stanford too much. Yeah. Um, you know, having been a student here, having been a TA here, having been associated with the university on and off for over 25 years, you grow into the university and the university grows into you. And, you know, frankly, I'm someone who still believes in institutions and that there's a role for institutions in the lives of individuals and the public. And I think Stanford day in and day out does a pretty wonderful job in what they're trying to do. Yeah, I agree. But we'll put it out there. Why not you, Tom? Okay, <laughs> just just keep it just keep it on the table. Okay? Fair enough. Okay, keep Fair it enough. keep it on the table. What other um, uh, kind of recent inspirations? Uh, you've said a lot of them, but you know, any one or couple in particular um, with either, even if it's personal, if you're okay with sharing it, that kind of uh, gives real reason to kind of wake up and do what it is what you do. Well. Frankly, actually working on this house history for the Decorator Showcase has, you know, made me think again how important it is um, to think about the space, the immediate space. I am in the marina all the time. I'd always thought about, wow, why are these streets sort of idiosyncratic around where the grid is. I'd never really deeply looked into it. So this was an opportunity for me to look more into my immediate landscape, to think about these revival styles. The house is done in a Spanish revival style. So it has, you know, the stucco and the red tile that we might see down here at Stanford wow. also. But um, to think about what was that style and that style was driven sort of strangely as a search for a authentic Californian architecture. So, you know, what what is Californian was sort of the question around the turn of the century. And architecturally, the Spanish revival, which followed the Mission revival, was one of these styles trying to answer that question. Yeah. And so I think we, you know, in effect, you were earlier asking me that question, what is appropriate California architecture or San Francisco architecture, and I think that question's being asked now in the area w near the transportation center that's going up with the Salesforce building, the mm -hmm. tallest yeah. building uh, west of Chicago, I think. Have you toured it? I, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. Um, and thinking about how do you weave in transportation, hopefully one day high-speed rail, going directly into the city through the transportation center. I think having the infrastructure, building the um, subway to into Chinatown will be oh. important. And so you look at something like the third, third street light rail that comes in, that uh, connecting the Bayview and um, the, the center of the city, that's really transformed that corridor. So you have places like Dogpatch that used to be viewed as run down, that's now vibrant. You have, um, as you move out towards the Bayview, that area is developing. And then how do, what do we do with this land around the formal candlestick park that's, um, yeah. you know, 
highly toxic. It doesn't sound like it's been eradicated very well, but there are great visions for developing that area. And it's really a wonderful part of the city. It's a warm and wonderful part of the city, but also how does that affect the African-American community that's there that's, you know, really suffered and languished sometimes because of policies and um, what will be their legacy when this development starts to surround them. Yeah. How do you take, a, you know, with, with architecture constantly evolving, the expectations for architectural buildings change as well. What's been your experience in the last, say, five or ten years in, in our area? Let's, used to say, well, it's general San Francisco Bay Area. What's been your experience in the last five, ten years with it changing? Well, I think uh, just the move towards densification of the city uh, with the increased population, um, looking at how many more loft-type structures have been built, um, probably the greatest movement towards densification, if you wanted to do a case study, is looking at the Caltrain station. So within the Caltrain tracks between Caltrain and Mission Bay, there are apartments that are constructed, and they look inward because outward is the railroad tracks. Okay. But to think that that would be an appropriate site for building 15 years ago, people would think you're crazy. Now it's a fully functioning neighborhood. And so I think the exciting parts about San Francisco are Mission Bay, mainly driven by UCSF, but also the Warriors' new stadium, <laughs> and how those two might function together. So what's going to happen when you have a basketball game and some sort of emergency situation? And also thinking about uh, with the anniversary of the 1906 earthquake just recently, how resilient will the city be? Uh, I was here for the 89 earthquake, and there's been so much more building since then mm -hmm. and some important changes made structurally uh, required by the city but uh, there are just more people and more buildings and we have to think um, you know when there's a big one it'll be a difficult situation to recover from this is the modern architect kzsu 90.1 fm stanford Oakland Ballet presents the spring season seen and heard with the premieres of five new story ballets by Bay Area choreographers, Bat Abbott, Antoine Hunter, Michael Lowe, Danielle Rowe, and company artistic director, Graham Lustig. Performances are one weekend only from May 31st through June 2nd at Laney College's Performing Arts Center. Tickets are available at oaklandballet.org. We're talking today with Tom Beischer architectural history and theory professor at Stanford University and the California College of the Arts. For more information, you can visit urbanstudies.stanford.edu. That's www.urbanstudies.stanford.edu. Tom, you mentioned, you said something I wasn't planning on all to talk about. You said the big one. Are there any, any, um, uh, programs or processes in place to, effectively deal with it? I, mean, I know there are, but are there any in your minds that you're thinking of that, that ought to be considered? Well, I think, you know, again, Stanford and Berkeley are leaders in thinking about structure. The program I teach in here, the architectural concentration is through the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. So it's wonderful to be surrounded by professors and students thinking about that. Um, one of my students, Hannah Thompson, is working on um, resiliency uh, in structures that will help buildings during an earthquake. So that to me is exciting. Um, I don't know the specifics about earthquake design well enough to really comment on programs, but I do know the research that's happening here at Stanford and also at Berkeley. And frankly, it's very exciting. Yeah. What would you, are there any suggestions you would have? Uh, I'm sure you do, but what suggestions would you have for an aspiring architect or engineer, designer, or a profession, professional in the built environment for even a student? I always tell my students that I think it's important to try to get into an architecture firm to see how it really works. Um, it's sometimes difficult because the AIA requires... Um, you can't do free internships usually at uh, architecture firms, so you have to be paid. So um, that 
sometimes restricts what architecture firms can do, but you can definitely shadow. And the idea is to find out what really goes on in the office. I think, you know, drawing is important and coming up with your design ideas, but um, when you meet the real world in an architecture office of restrictive <laughs> covenants and finances and clients, um, it becomes maybe a little less glamorous than it is in an academic environment. Yes, for sure. For sure that is. What um, There's a quote I'm going to... I'd like to hear your take on it. It's by uh, Daniel. If I'm saying his name incorrectly, correct me. It's Liebeskind? Liebeskind, yeah. Liebeskind. Mm-hmm. To provide meaningful architecture is not to parody history, but to articulate it. Your thoughts? Well, I always tell my students the reason you take architectural history is to steal. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes okay. it's grand larceny and sometimes it's petty theft. <laughs> but um, you need a catalog of forms to inspire you, but you don't want to copy those forms. You want to push architecture in new ways, but to have... You know, Jefferson inspired by um, the Maison Carrier for the Virginia State Capitol or inspired by the Pantheon for his dome at Monticello is someone who's thinking about how can I apply those forms to the American context. And so I think the best architects have a rich knowledge of history and also the theory or the philosophy of architecture because... Um, if your first job is detailing or doing uh, work for a larger architecture firm or doing some of the small stuff, you want to think about what's your position going to be 10 years into your your job or your profession. And that's where theory and philosophy and historical form is really important. Yeah. Do you... Is that something you really stress to them, if like from the beginning and the end of class and even maybe the middle, so that they uh, keep everything in context? Well, my thoughts are sort of self-serving, but <laughs> I, I never think you can have too much architectural yeah. history or architectural theory. And it's usually in my classes right now, out of 25 people in my class, I have two or three auditors. And the auditors are usually from the community or sometimes from the Cantor Center for the Arts. And they always say, you know, I wish I'd taken more art history and more architectural history when I was a student or when I was younger. And so I think this is really also an area for um, online programs or MOOCs that I think could be really profitable or also good for these companies that there's a groundswell, I feel like, uh, especially in the 50-plus group of learning more about the arts and architecture. And so I think there are digital products or virtual products that could really deliver that home. I mean, to me, the most exciting thing about teaching architectural history that I could see coming on are virtual reality headsets. So instead of me telling a student, showing them four or five images and a plan of this is what Monticello is like, you would put on a headset and you would walk through Monticello and you would walk outside of Monticello. And so you would literally be at that building because the difference between teaching architectural history and art history is this acquisition of the third dimension and thinking about how you are in the third dimension. Yeah. Now, share with us when the uh, San Francisco Decorator Showcase, when uh, when that may be taking place. Yeah, so tonight is the gala opening for the um, Decorator Showcase, but the showcase runs April 28th through May 28th, and um, you can check online at decoratorshowcase.org for hours, but usually it's open from... 10 in the morning till 7 at night, though hours would vary. So I'd encourage everyone to go to decoratorshowcase.org to check on the exact times. Excellent. Tom, it's been a pleasure and an honor having you. I hope you consider coming back to as soon as this ended too soon, really. Uh, I've got so many questions I'd love love to ask you, and I hope you consider returning sometime soon. Sure. It'd be a pleasure to come back, and thanks for a really wonderful time this Thank afternoon. You. Thank you very much, Tom. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Tom Beischer, 
Tom currently teaches architectural history and theory at Stanford University and California College of the Arts. He received his BA in art history from Stanford and MA in art history from Williams College and a PhD in history, theory, and criticism of architecture from MIT. His scholarship has ranged from articles on 19th century architecture to contemporary Asian art. For more information, feel free to visit urbanstudies.stanford.edu. That's urbanstudies.stanford.edu. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diaro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.